Good evening. Uh, each month we are delving into some questions and answers, and I think it's always the case, at least as long as I can remember, that these are very diverse from one another, and it's going to be that way tonight. We're going to be looking at some questions that may be difficult for us to appreciate the answer with regard to, but are laid out for us, I think, very plainly. Some others are going to require a little bit of judgment, uh, will veer into the realm of opinion. Um, I don't like to use the word conjecture, but we'll have to do, you use the words you want to use, have to do a little speculating for us to try to come to some of those answers. So please take those with a grain of salt, and I will try to make sure that I differentiate with regard to that. Our first question, actually we had multiple questions that were given to us uh, with regard to the overall theme or subject. If you wanted to put it all in one bucket, that bucket would be the role of women. Uh, And the question would be, uh, the role of women, what's eternal, what's cultural? Uh, There is perhaps one other uh, question that, well, you can see it up there, um, teaching baptized boys. I'm going to deal with that one a little bit differently after we have looked at uh, the main portion of this, which will require you, if you would, turn your Bibles over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, 1 Timothy 2, and appreciate Caden and the the good reading he did of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, it finds itself in a broader context. And we'll talk more about that context in a moment, but the immediate context, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the role of the church with regard to prayer and preaching in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7. And then he shifts his focus to what men are to do in the public leading of worship. It seems very clear in what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. He is, uses the act of worship of prayer, but certainly what would apply uh, in regards to prayer would re- apply to all the acts of worship. We could easily see that where Paul says that he wants men, the men, that's a very specific word, not mankind, anthropos, but uh, men, aner, uh, the, to be the ones who are involved in Uh, leading the congregation in prayer. So the Apostle Paul is laying out whose roles are what in the leadership in the work of the church. And it's in that particular context that you have Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 15, shifting his focus to the role of woman in the uh, leadership and the public uh, leadership of worship. And in that regard, he talks first about uh, how he is instructing her to, to be adorned with modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, uh, that she's going to give focus to the inward person. First Peter 3, verse 3 and 4 would also say this. She is, as a woman who is concerned with godliness, she's going to be concerned about doing good works. Uh, and he says, but uh, she is not to teach, but to learn in silence. He says, I do not al- uh, allow a woman to teach or to have authority over the man, but to be in entire submissiveness. And then, of course, you saw what else that Caden read, and we'll have our Bibles there and we'll refer back to this. Now, these have become some of the most controversial and debated verses in the New Testament. And I think we can understand why that would be as we look at a culture in which we're reading these passages. We have seen progression and advancement of women in our society uh, in various spheres of leadership, uh, in the professional world and in the political world. 
In fact, I don't know if you know this, a lot of the firsts in our nation are more ancient than what we even know, but the first woman police officer in the United States was uh, appointed to that job in 1910. And then you have the first federal judge who uh, will serve in 1932. And you'll have the, the first uh, presidential candidate, uh, cabinet member, a uh, female can- cabinet member to serve in Roosevelt's administration in 1933. And you're going to have the first jet pilot in 1944, the first CEO of a Fortune 500 com- company, 1972. You're going to have the first um, Supreme Court justice in 1981. You're going to have the first vice presidential candidate in 1984, the first presidential candidate in 2016, and the first vice president elected to office in 2020. So as we look at virtually every area in which we might see someone in leadership and achievement in society, a woman has been placed in those positions throughout society. If we look in the religious world, you will find that the first woman ordained to serve as a preacher in denominationalism was in 1815, and then that practice spread pretty soon to the other denominations, most of them, in the next few years. And even when we speak in terms of those who would claim to be a part of the New Testament church, the church that belongs to our Lord, apart from denominationalism, there is in a minority of cases those who believe and are actually practicing that a woman can take a leadership role, whether we're talking about serving as elders or deacons or preachers or otherwise serving in the public worship of the church. So our task before us for the next few minutes is to examine this more closely to look particularly at the passage that's in front of us. I think a lot of what we're going to see, we'll look at a few other passages, but it's going to center around what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And what further complicates that is that there is a word that is used in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 12. It's in the original language, authentane. It is translated in various ways. It is either translated, have authority, exercise authority, Assume authority. If you have the King James, it says usurp authority. Only place you will find it in your New Testament is there in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12. And it creates a bit of a complication for us because we've got to answer some questions. We've got to answer the question of timing. Now, English is a living language. That means that words are changing their meaning. When the New Testament is written, the Greek, which is now a dead language, at least the Greek that we're speaking of, was living. And so word meanings were changing. That word that we're talking about originally meant or included the idea of murder. And it brought into mean criminal behavior. But about the time of the first century church, it means to have authority or rule. Um, and it could also mean dominate or control. So we've got to ask ourselves, is, is Paul using this word in the way that it was typically used at the time in which he's writing the New Testament? And that would be to exercise rule or authority, okay, or to lead. Now, another question that we've got to be able to answer is not just one of timing, but of semantic range. That is, how is the word used in different places. We have the one New Testament example. So we've got to ask ourselves, how was that word used in the secular world? How was that word used in the religious world apart from the New Testament occurrence that we have? 
And the ways that it's used helps us to come to an understanding. And we've got to ask ourselves, was Paul speaking literally here or was he speaking figuratively? And by the way, he's speaking literally here. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's not speaking poetically. And so what we've been able to see so far is that the Apostle Paul, in using that word to have authority, is using it literally. And he means by that to uh, to teach or to, uh, I'm sorry, to to, uh, rule or exercise authority. So then there's another question that we've got to answer with regard to that. We've got the timing one. And we've got that of semantic range, but we've also got the question of context. Language is this interconnected system of words that have meaning in the context. Can we look at the context and understand what the Apostle Paul is saying with regard to the role of women in the church? Now, I know all of that's a very kind of technical way to set that up, but it's important for us to see that the Holy Spirit is guiding these writers in what it is that they're saying. And so Paul wants the church as a whole, to understand what her role is. Now, there's some questions we've got to answer in order to get to women's role, and then we'll begin to make some application to the things that you see on the slide in front of you. First of all, I want you to notice that this idea of having authority is connected to teach. That word to teach simply means to instruct in a formal or informal uh, setting. It means to cause to know. Now, the way this is constructed is you have two infinitives, to teach and to have authority. And they're joined by conjunction, and. And every single time, what you have with those verbs is when they're used together like that, they've both got to be positive or they've got to be negative. What I mean by that, Paul is not saying that you can teach so long as the teaching is not false. And he's also not saying that you can teach if you're not seizing control, but if it's given to you. That cannot be deduced from what Paul says here. These things rise and fall together. That's why Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over the man. And so you've got to see that particular connection. It's also contrasted with her being quiet It is also clarified by entire submissiveness. When it comes to the role of leadership in the church, the Apostle Paul points to the males in the body and he says that I want them to be doing that in the public assemblies. When it comes to the woman, there's a contrast there in which that is not to be done. And while he does not have to do this, he also gives us an appreciation for why. What's the cause of this command? Now, There's two answers given. We need to understand that God does not have to give us the reason why that something is done or is not allowed to be done. But in this particular case, what we have is the Apostle Paul giving us two contextual reasons why she is not to teach or to exercise authority over the man. The first is the order of creation. Adam was first formed and then Eve. And then there was the manner of transgression in the garden. You notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, that the man was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, here's what we might say, Neil, I don't understand. What does Adam and Eve's participation in the Garden of Eden have anything to do with what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 12 through 15? I don't know that I can give you a, a, a clear answer as to why the Holy Spirit moved Paul to give this as the reason, the rationale, but we cannot dispute the fact that that's exactly what happens in the context. 
So the Apostle Paul sets that up for us and gives us the domain of work in which each man is to do that public leadership of the worship. And as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as qualifications are given for elders and deacons, it seems clear that what Paul is doing is again pointing to the male leadership in the church. All right, now here's four applications, and then we'll get to a couple of other items. First of all, what Paul is teaching us here is that we each have a sphere of, of influence or work in which we are to operate our influence. When it comes to the sphere of work for God's woman, he has a particular place in which he focuses on her being effective in the kingdom of God. Now, that's demonstrated in a lot of different contexts in the New Testament. For example, we will see that woman is, in this particular text, tasked with doing good works. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. As it is with everything that's uh, out there for us to do in the body of Christ, none of us are doing all that it is that we could be doing to advance the cause of Christ. But that's one area in which she is to work. We also look and see the example of Lois and Eunice. And we see a very vital task that is served with regard to the teaching of children. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5 and 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, we have uh, those women teaching Timothy, who would later go on to be a gospel preacher, and who knows how many folks he's responsible for reaching. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, we have the circumstance where women who are uh, Christian women are teaching other women uh, and especially we find the context of older women teaching younger women in the work that they are to do. We also find an example in Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 where you have a Christian woman who is helping a man in a private uh, teaching situation. And so there is a sphere of influence in which God's woman is to work, a fruitful and a impactful and a wide-reaching work that she does. A second application I'd like to make with regard to that is, is that God wants us to work within that sphere of influence that he has given to us. Now, there are works that are to be done that not everybody can do regardless of gender. We realize that there are works that not all men can be engaged in. For example, not every man is qualified for various reasons to serve as an elder in the Lord's church. Not every man is is eligible to serve or qualified to serve as a deacon. Not everyone is qualified by way of being gifted or by uh, James chapter 3 and verse 1, where James says, "Don't be, of you, many of you be teachers, knowing that you shall re- receive a stricter judgment. Romans chapter 12, there are folks who have that particular gift. Not everyone has that ability in which to work. But another consideration is is that we've got to allow Scripture to help us to view culture and not cause culture to make us look at Scripture differently. I don't remember exactly the way that he said it, but I appreciate how Ralph Gilmore several years ago uh, addressed this particular topic that we're talking about tonight. He says, if the Bible was not written to us, why are we here? If the Bible was not written to us, why are we discussing this? Yes, we must understand that the Bible was written to those to whom it was written, but it was also written to us. If we believe in the providence of God, we believe that God knew that this was not just for the people that was then, but it's for those that would live thereafter. And God would know that we were still here today and that this teaching would be for us today. 
Well, what somebody might say with regard to our study of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is you're being selective when it comes to the cultural and the eternal. And they might say, what about 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8? The Apostle Paul says that men are to lift holy hands in prayer. How is it that we're saying that the command for men to be the ones doing the praying is eternal, but what about the lifting of holy hands? Well, may I suggest to you that God's not very concerned about an exclusive posture in prayer. But regardless of what one's posture is in prayer, one must, in leading the prayer, be one who is able to do so uh, without wrath and without doubting and with a life that is holy in lifestyle. Or somebody might say, what about with regard to uh, the, the woman where there's a prohibition against uh, braided hair or costly apparel? Uh, how is that uh, something that is cultural, but this command being something that is eternal? Well, with regard to that, what Paul is saying is that women, no matter what age in which they live, are to be modest in their apparel. They are to be indicative of good works. They are to be those who oversee the area of the domestic realm. And that being the case, what Paul does there with the the... the uh, the ornaments and the gold and the pearls and the costly array, he's giving an example of what would be immodest or unbecoming. What Paul is saying is regardless of the age in which you live, focus on the inward person and not the outward person. The question then becomes, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, where does this pertain to? Where do these rules apply? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, we have one of those few books in the Bible where the writer is giving us the purpose for the writing of the book. The Apostle Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So what Paul is saying is, I'm writing this letter so that you can know that in God's house, not the church building, but in God's family, there is a way in which he wants things to be conducted. And when we're referring to that context, then these are the things that have to be true. These are the things that must follow. These are the commands that we are to obey whenever it is that we live. So here's the question. What if we're talking about a smaller gathering, a worship gathering, that's not in this auditorium? And we understand this auditorium is not sacred. It is one place in which we typically meet. So the rules that apply here, if we had this group meeting outside or meeting at camp or somewhere else, it's God's house, God's rules. If we're talking about a a youth devotion or in some smaller setting where the people of God are gathered together, then these rules would still be applicable. God is saying that he has a sphere, a place of honor, a great work where he can most effectively carry out the objectives that he has had in his mind from eternity for man and woman. And by our understanding that and being submissive to that, we can carry out what it is that he wishes for us to do. Now, that may be an appetite wetter and perhaps more questions for Hiram next month can uh, come forward from that. But let let me answer this Maybe it's a hot potato. I don't know. I'll find out after church. With regard to a Christian woman teaching a baptized boy, is that biblical or is that not biblical? Now, um, I'm going to suggest this. I have written on this subject before. Um, If you want to read the article, uh, we tested it out from the sound booth. You can 
stick your QR, your camera up there and it'll catch that QR code and you'll get the entire article. I'm just going to give you a couple of salient points uh, with regard to that. I don't believe we can say it is wrong for a Christian woman to teach a baptized, listen to me, boy. Because that boy does not become a man simply by virtue of obeying the gospel. There's no other place where that boy would automatically become a man. The DMV, the military, um, the home, uh, the school does not automatically confer that, that change by, by virtue of somebody obeying the gospel. If a boy being baptized became a man, you'd have a very difficult situation at home for that uh, little boy who goes home and his mom is charged with raising him in the way he should go. Not only that, but what if that little boy has a baptized boyfriend who comes home with him that weekend? Can she be the authority in that home or not? Now listen, if somebody has the conviction that they believe that it's wrong, I believe that we need to be sensitive to that. And the elders in their wisdom may think that it is a wise judgment to have men to be teaching baptized boys. And I think that's great. I think any way that we can get anybody involved is a wonderful thing. Um, but from the standpoint of whether that boy becomes a man through the act of baptism, is it in violation of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12? I don't believe that we can make the passage say that. So it was nice knowing you, and uh, uh, that's how I would answer that question. I'm certainly open to uh, any kind of follow-up with regard to that. All right, let's just change course completely as quickly as we can. All right, where did Cain get his wife? Now, there were a couple of theories that were put forward, uh, and I don't know that we have an exhaustive amount of choices to choose from. Uh, the first would be that Eve would be uh, the, the answer to that, that Eve would be the mother of Cain's wife. Uh, another option that has been put forward is that God in a special creation, like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, uh, provided for Cain to have his own wife. Well, the short answer I would give to this is I believe that Genesis 3 and verse 20 is our most solid biblical answer for that. Uh, Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. All right, that being the case, I think that's our, our, our plausible answer. There, to, to say otherwise that there was a special creation is total conjecture. There's no biblical foundation for that whatsoever. And so I think we need to reject that one out of hand. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, Cain's wife, that Eve was Cain's wife's mother. She could have been her grandmother, her great-grandmother, could have been her aunt. We could talk about all the, the, the genea- uh, genealogical parts of this. But whoever was Cain's wife's mother was a direct descendant, or at least an ultimate descendant of Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Now, that, to me, seems to be the most plausible answer to that. Number three, was Jesus always God's son? I came to a pretty quick answer with regard to that, but the more I, and I tell you, I've been studying on this some more this afternoon, uh, and I will try to qualify the answer that I gave, but the short answer I would say is no. He is not always, uh, he was not always God's son. Now here's what I would say to set that up. He is God. Him being God means 
He has always been. He is um, among those that Moses will refer to in Psalm 90 and verse 2 when he says, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He bears all the qualities of God, one of which would be eternality. That is, he has always been. Now, the reason I say that he has not always been the Son of God, the Son of God, listen, not deity, he's always been deity, is because of Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 where the psalmist is speaking messianically, that is, with regard to the coming Christ, and he says, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And at least three New Testament passages, Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1 and verse 5, and Hebrews 5 and verse 5, all quote Psalm 2 and verse 7 and apply it to Jesus. Now, Jesus is proving his deity the whole time he's on earth. You can't really appreciate what John is saying in the Gospel of John without those I am statements. Before Abraham was, John 8, 58, I am. I am the I am. The the uncaused cause, the self-existent one. So our only question would be, when does he become the Son of God? Listen, he's the Word from eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, I believe, existed as the pre-incarnate, that means before he came in the flesh, word. Now, there's a lot of different explanations of what it meant for him to be the son of God and at what time juncture there would have been. There was a sense in which he became the son of God through what they call the nativity, that is, through the, the birth, he became the son of God. He became the son of God in his purpose and mer- uh, mission at the baptism of John. He became the Son of God in a very unique way in fulfilling that role in the resurrection, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 and a great many other passages. But I believe the best answer, especially from reading the book of Hebrews, is that that occurrence happened in the eternity before time. So in having said that, there's a sense in which the answer would be, yes, he has always been God's Son because eternity has no time. When that was, you know what we can do when we get to heaven? We can ask God, hey, exactly when was that? But in the sense that there was a begetting. In Philippians chapter 2, let me add this in verse 5. There was a change with regard to God the Son that took place in the coming in flesh. Though he were a son, yet learned to you, I'm sorry, um, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think equality of God a thing to be grasped. He's God from eternity. But he took on him the form of a servant and was found in fashion as a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God has exalted him. He placed himself in this submissive role. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 makes that clear. The head of Christ is God in a permanent way. He has that robe of flesh, having come all God and all man. Uh, So uh, there's another start to that question that was asked. But I believe that he became the Son of God. He has always been God. uh, And he has existed as the before in the flesh word. Okay. Why did John call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved? Was he Jesus' favorite? Did he think he was Jesus' favorite? This is a phrase that is found particularly in John 13, John 19, John 20, and John 21. And in all those places, you'll find John referring to himself in that way. In fact, if I'm right in this, if you read the entire Gospel of John, you're not going to find John refer to himself as John in a biographical way as he writes through the, the, the life of Christ. He always refers to himself as 
as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There is perhaps the thought that he was being arrogant. He was saying, look, I'm special because I'm the one that Jesus loved. Well, there's a couple of potential explanations with regard to that. The word that there are at least two other Johns, if you look in the ESV especially, that are mentioned in the book of John. There's John the Baptist who's mentioned over 20 times. Uh, and Peter's father, uh, Peter, is called the son of John, especially in the ESV. So perhaps to distinguish, there's that. But I think more likely what's going on is that John is writing for a specific purpose. This is another one of those books where John gives us the reason why he's writing the book. John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs truly to Jesus in the midst of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing you might have life in his name. In keeping with all that we read about John, in the other Gospels, and through his writings, he is one who is trying to get himself out of the way so that people can see the Christ that he's trying to build faith in. It seems to me that John is doing this as an act of humility by just referring to himself in somewhat more of a, a, a generic way so that even his, his name and who he is doesn't get in the way of the gospel story. There's one other question that was asked. I, I, I was asked two questions today. One was right before services, and I did not have time to adequately prepare for that. But I want to mention the other question that was asked tonight. Um, and by way, if you're keeping score, the first question, I believe that's tied down in Scripture with regard to the role of, of women, and we can certainly study that. I believe it's unambiguous at all. Uh, with regard to where uh, Cain got his wife, bit of, of opinion involved in that. I believe, though, we have solid foundation in Genesis 3.20. With regard to uh, when Jesus became the Son of God, I believe there's some theological truth there, but a, a bit of judgment in trying to, to answer that. And with regard to why Jesus, uh, John rather called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, my best conjecture with regard to that. And this last one is certainly also a question that involves judgment. And by the way, the one who asked the question said, this has nothing to do with Lehman. So... Uh, they, they wanted the, the elders here to know that this has nothing to do with uh, the, the eldership here whom they hold in high regard. But it is a very important question that happens, doesn't happen very often, but happens enough that it has caused a lot of grief within the body of Christ. The question essentially is this. What do you do in a situation where an elder has become unqualified? through some manner of life, either through immorality or by a blatant um, a violation of the, the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And despite the fact that there's a need for them to repent or to resign, that they refuse to do that. What system, here's the question, what system does one put into place in a situation like that? That's not theoretical. In the congregation I preached at before I moved here, before I was there, there was a situation in which um, a, a man serving became very clearly uh, pugnacious uh, and divisive. And as the result of that, uh, there was a request from the other elders for that man to step down, which he refused to do. What's God's pattern in a situation like that? Let me preface that by saying that when it comes to how a man is appointed an elder, there's a, there's a manner of judgment involved in that. In other words, we realize there are qualifications, but 
does the Bible set forth a singular pattern for how elders are appointed in a congregation? I believe the answer to that is no. Could elders say here are some men that we believe are qualified and put those names before the congregation and, and based on uh, that process of, of, uh, appoint those men? Absolutely. Could they begin the process by asking the congregation to supply names for them to consider? Sure. Is there one way in which that's to be done? I don't see that there is one. It's the bottom line of having those men appointed that's of concern to us conducting things in the house of God the way he wants. Now, with regard to how a man might be removed in a, in a very extreme and unusual situation like that, um, I would like to think that what we could do best is to appeal to such a brother. In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul talks about how serious it is in receiving an accusation against an elder but Paul is telling Timothy that there may get to be a situation where one who sins is to be rebuked by all. Um, but what happens? What's the process involved? Well, let me share with you the process that went forward at, uh, at Bear Valley. And to even use this term causes people to be un- uncomfortable because there's something that's done that's like this that's not this. That's referred to, what they, what they did was they asked the congregation to express their confidence in those men. And that one man uh, who should have on his own resigned should have. There's no question. Uh, they did not say that they wished to follow him. Now, could they have withdrawn fellowship? That would have been a way that they could have done that. Uh, because every elder is in subjection to the eldership. Um, could that man have done as he should have and repented? It would have never been a problem. But in an absence of a better way of doing that, that's what they chose to do. Some who criticized that called that reaffirmation of elders. And that they liken that to a process in some congregations and throughout the denominational world where every two or three years the eldership is put before the congregation in somewhat of a democratic format and they were allowed to choose whether those men continue to serve or not. We could see a problem with that inherently. Uh, it takes the, the, the leadership, the oversight, completely out of the work of an elder. This was not that. This was a very difficult situation that had no easy resolution. My bottom line point is that, first of all, let's pray that in 100,000 years that it never happens here. But if, it ever, if there's ever a situation where a congregation is faced with that, when they need to be able to deal with a situation like that, God doesn't give us a set pattern But the end result so often is, sadly, that if all are not serving uh, honorably for the cause of Christ, um, whether it's in our private lives or in the congregational life, then there can be great damage that's done. Nobody's going to win in a situation like that. Maybe with another day or two I could have given you a more polished answer to that, but I hope that that suffices with regard to this. Our confidence is that as we grow in our knowledge of God's Word... We're going to uh, come uh, into some areas that cause us to dig deeper and want to know more closely on those matters that are somewhat obscure and somewhat difficult. But what I'm thankful for is, is that almost all of what God has told us to do in His Word is set forth clearly and plainly and simply. God lays it out there for us so that we can understand it, that we can believe it or make a choice about whether we will believe it and we can accept it and follow it or make the choice not to. He's laid out for us very clearly what the consequences are of each choice that is made in our life. 
God communicates to us through his word and he wants us to know it. But more than that, he wants it to be our guide and he wants it to be the basis for our relationship with him. And that's why in his word he's made it very clear about how we become his child. He wants nothing more than for us to be in a relationship with him. And he tells us exactly how that's to be done. He's laid it out in his word. It's a consistent message wherever you're reading. Whereas you can see, God has given us a way in which we can come into fellowship with him. He's told us that faith in Jesus as God's son should lead us to have a change of heart, a change of mind that leads to godly sorrow and a change of action that would cause us, no matter what the consequences might be, to be able to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and to allow ourselves to be baptized to have our sins washed away. It's what He wants for us. I know that's what we want for us if we've not done that yet. Maybe you'd like to act on that decision tonight to become a child of God. Or maybe as a child of God, there's some way in which we can help you in praying for you Perhaps there's some need in your life that we can address in the Father, uh, to the Father in prayer. If this is an invitation to which you need to respond, we would encourage you to come as we stand and sing.